Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. A while back, we held a debate in which the resolution was the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. And guess what? That resolution was actually defeated. And yet the idea that the system is broken is certainly the presumption driving another idea that more Americans are telling pollsters that they are now in favor of and that Democratic candidates for president are endorsing and promoting. And that is the idea of a single-payer system where the government picks up the bill for everyone's health care coverage. And private insurance more or less goes away, at least for most people. Once seen as an outlier proposal, single-payer is definitely getting a rhetorical tryout for this period in time. And we thought it has the makings of a debate. So we did it. We brought together two teams of two, four debaters in all, who have spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. We brought them to the K-Playhouse in New York City and asked them to take a stand to argue yes or no on this resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. This Oxford-style debate went in three rounds, and then our live audience in New York City chose the winner. Let's meet our debaters. First, the team arguing for the resolution. Please welcome Dr. Adam Gaffney. Adam, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You are a pulmonary specialist. You're the doctor on the stage at Harvard's Cambridge Health Alliance. You're also president of Physicians for a National Health Program. Adam, it's great to have you on the stage. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And let's meet your partner, please, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Joe Sandberg. Hi, Joe. Uh, You are a progressive entrepreneur. You're co-founder of Aspiration.com. You're also co-founder of the advocacy group uh, Working Hero Action. You are one of the nation's top activists for the Earned Income Tax Credit, which helps low-income families. It's great to have you on the stage. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And we have two debaters arguing against the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. Please first welcome Nick Gillespie. Hi, Nick. Welcome back. You have debated with us twice before. Um, You're undefeated, by the way, so a lot at stake here for you tonight. Uh, You're editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. You're co-author of the Declaration of Independence, ENTS, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Are you going to extend that winning record tonight? Uh, You know, it's no secret that I have a glass jaw, John, so uh, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see. I'll I'll keep my guard up. Thanks for having me. Sure. It's great to have you back. And let's please welcome another returning debater, ladies and gentlemen, Sally Pipes. As I said, Sally, you're an IQ2 U.S. alum. You are president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute. You're a pro- prolific writer on healthcare, including your column, Piping Up, for Forbes.com. That comes from your name, I'm guessing. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. Your forthcoming book is called False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Uh, Sally Pipes, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. Ladies and gentlemen, our, our team's arguing for and against the resolution. So let's move on to the debate proper. Our debate goes in three rounds. Round one, opening statements by each of the four debaters in turn. The first to speak in support of the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for All, is president of the Physicians for a National Health Program. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Adam Gaffney. Thank you. On one issue, there is no debate. The United States has the costliest healthcare system in the world, and despite that, we leave nearly 30 million people uninsured and many more with insurance that is so skimpy it's basically junk. As an intensive care unit physician, I have seen the harm that our system imposes on patients with catastrophic results. 
Our side is going to argue that a single-payer, improved Medicare for All system is not only the best way forward, it is actually the only way if we are going to solve three of the gravest problems of the American healthcare system. So what are those problems and how will single-payer solve them? Number one, we have to cover everybody. Now, you may hear sometimes that it doesn't matter very much because hospitals can't turn you away if you show up. So what's the big deal? Believe me, it is a giant deal. If you're uninsured and you go to the hospital and are admitted, you may accrue tens of thousands of dollars of medical debt bankrupting you. For the uninsured, the cost of physician care is often too high. The cost of prescription drugs are too high. So what do the uninsured do? They go without the care they need. Medicare for All would solve that problem by covering everyone the day it is implemented. Everyone in, no one out, problem solved. Let's move on to problem number two. We also have to improve coverage for everyone else. Now, you're going to hear from the other side tonight, I think, that Americans love their private health insurance. They don't want to give it up. But the reality is private health insurance is failing Americans from coast to coast, and they know it. Insurance deductibles, the amount of money you pay out of pocket before insurance kicks in, are rising. Medicare for All would solve these problems very quickly and very simply. Everyone would get a public insurance plan that would cover your health care needs without co-pays or deductibles. It's how it works in many countries in Europe. It's how it works in Canada. We can do it here in the richest country in the world. That brings me to the final goal, controlling costs. You may hear from the other side tonight that... Well, that all sounds good, but how are we going to pay for it? Well, I'll tell you how we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it because our current system is far more costly than it needs to be. Let me give one example. Private health insurance companies take 12% of every premium dollar you give them in their overhead for their profits, for their administration, for their marketing, in order to fight with doctors, in order to fight with patients. That is six-fold higher than traditional Medicare, which only takes 2% for its overhead. That is enormous waste. Meanwhile, on the other side, hospitals are employing armies of billers and coders to fight with the insurance companies. We spend $80,000 per physician in this country just to cover the cost of their interactions with insurers. That's fourfold higher than Canada. So that wastes time that physicians should be spending with their patients, and it wastes time that patients should be spending recovering from their illnesses. We don't need to do it this way. And the simple fact is that a Medicare for All system could save hundreds of billions of dollars in administrative waste, money that could cover everyone. So, in closing, the profound suffering imposed by our ailing healthcare system deserves strong medicine. There's a reason why a majority of Americans support Medicare for All. There's a reason why so many physicians think this is the best reform both for themselves and for their patients. It is the only reform that can actually deliver universal health care while delivering the cost savings to pay for it. Thank you. I'm Daphne. The resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for All. Here's our first speaker to argue against the resolution, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, Nick Gillespie. Hi. Thank you, uh, everyone. And, uh, you know, what I want to start with is I want to uh, start with the things I think that we agree on, all four of us on the stage. And I won't speak for John, but I suspect he's in on this, too, which is that we want a country where people can pursue life, liberty, and happiness as they define it. Uh, and we want a country where people who want health insurance and who have medical care, that, that they get it, that it's universal and accessible to all. The question is, how, do, how best do we get there? And the, let me lay out quickly the reasons why I'm against the idea of Medicare for All, particularly the way that it's talked about by Bernie Sanders, who is really the, the, the impetus for this conversation. Um, and he talks about it as Medicare for All means no premiums, no co-pays, no deductibles, and no more time wasted arguing with profit-driven insurance companies. Does anybody? Yeah, that all sounds great, doesn't it? Okay, now how exactly do we get there? Um, 
because we don't, want, we don't just want a system that is available for everybody. We also want one that is constantly improving and innovating. And one of the things that's interesting in Adam's statements, he didn't talk about improvements in healthcare. He didn't talk about innovation. He didn't talk about growing the ability of people to get more healthcare, even as plainly we would be increasing the demand. Think about it in terms of general economics. Markets deliver more stuff to more people in more ways than controlled systems, than, single, than a single-payer system is going to do. It is true, according to Gallup, the most recent Gallup polls, 80% of people in America say that the quality of their personal health care is excellent or good. 70% say their health care coverage is excellent or good. So most of us are happy with the system as it is. So that means if you're arguing for Medicare at all, you're telling 80% of Americans, you guys, you're all wet. You're, you're wrong about things. One of the reasons for that is because in order to do Medicare for all, and this is according to the proponents of the plan, the cost is going to be between $3 trillion to $4 trillion a year in new taxes that the government will be raising. That's, that's double what the federal government already is raising in taxes. Now, Medicare for all, if you go back to this idea that you know, supply and demand is not different when we're talking about medical care than it is, say, when we're talking about groceries or about the production of books or movies or clothing. When you increase the demand for something and you do not increase the supply, you are going to get limited, uh, you know, you're going to get weights, you're going to get waiting lists, you're going to get rationing by a bureaucrat. Finally, and this is the other reason to be against Medicare for all, it's going to kill innovation in the healthcare field. And everything that is good about healthcare is better now than it was 50 years ago because of innovation. It's going to stymie things in two ways. First off, do you really expect a centralized bureaucracy to decide, okay, this is a good cutting-edge way of treating illness? We're going to go ahead with that. The government and bureaucrats in the government in particular, when, they have, when you have no recourse outside of that system, which is the whole point of Medicare for all, there is no outside, they're not going to be responsive, they're not going to be forward-looking, they're not going to be avant-garde when it comes to new types of health care. The other thing, and this goes to Bernie's idea about profit-driven insurance companies, how many of you work for a living? And how many of you work for a wage? You know, t- talking about stuff as profit-driven is just mere ideological cant. If you take away a drug company, if you take away a doctor's incentive to make money and to come up with new ways of doing things, which is what will happen under Medicare for All because there will be strident price controls on all sorts of activities in the healthcare space, you're going to hurt the ability to try new things and to make money from doing them. There's nothing wrong with that. So what can we do? What we can do is do things to make markets function more clearly. The healthcare system will be fixed if we bring more market signals in uh, so that things are working better. And also, we can subsidize people, the 28 million people without insurance. We can give them money to help them buy insurance on the private market. More opening statements on Medicare for All when we come back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. Debating for the resolution is Aspiration.com's co-founder, Joe Sandberg. Thank you. Thank you. I grew up in poverty. My mom raised me by herself. And when I was a teenager, we lost our home to foreclosure. I saw my mom wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, agonizing over how she was going to help her parents in their final years get health care, how she was going to make sure my brother and I were able to go to the doctor and get the care we needed. The experience I had growing up and the experience my mom had raising me by herself doesn't make me unique. In fact, it puts me in common 
with almost eight out of 10 Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. This debate is much bigger than the question of single-payer health insurance. This debate is about the number one reason that America has a poverty crisis. Poverty isn't what the statisticians have told us, that if you live below some arbitrary mathematical line, you're poor, and if you earn $5,000 above that line, you're middle class. Poverty is whether you have the peace of mind that when your kid is sick, you'll be able to take her or him to the doctor. For an economy where people work for one employer, maybe employer-based health insurance was suitable. But a lot of the arguments you're going to hear tonight against Medicare for All are arguments that are outdated 25 years. It's true that people used to be reasonably happy with their employer-based health insurance when they had employers. But as we increasingly move into an economy where people are reliant on freelancing work, the idea of employer-based health insurance seems antiquated. The number one way we can solve America's poverty crisis is by ensuring that no one is of want or worry for health care. Now, I bring a unique perspective as an entrepreneur and a business person. I operate in the private sector. And let me tell you, the current system is broken left, right, center, upside down, every which way to Sunday. And it's not just broken for the 40 million people who don't have insurance and the 40 million people who are underinsured, who are disproportionately women and people of color. But it's also broken for entrepreneurs, for employers, and for workers. The United States is the only developed economy in the world whose businesses have to compete globally without government health insurance. So when our companies are operating in a global marketplace against companies from Germany or Japan, they're competing against companies that aren't responsible for health insurance and therefore can direct more private sector dollars to real innovation that's productive, inventing new products and research and development. Second of all, think about the effect on entrepreneurs. You know, at the top level, people think this is a golden era of entrepreneurship, but it's actually untrue. This is a golden era of people starting companies, but they can't survive more than a couple of years. And the biggest reason is those new companies are crippled by health insurance costs. As you hear us expound on the merits of single-payer health insurance, and you hear statistics from this side and from our side, remember that this is fundamentally about a question of, we want a country where people make money off of those who die and don't have access, or a country that prioritizes ensuring that no one is too poor to live. Thank you, Joe Sandberg. Our resolution again, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. And here to make her opening statement against the resolution, CEO and President of the Pacific Research Institute, Sally Pipes. Medicare for All is more popular today than ever. 50% of Americans being polled today support the idea of Medicare for All. Support for Medicare for All rests on several misconceptions. Medicare for All would simply enroll everyone in a government health insurance plan. Medicare, as we know it, along with Medicaid, would be eliminated. Private health insurance would be banned, and one million people in the insurance industry would lose their jobs. The only thing that this program would borrow from the Medicare program is the payment structure, and that's a problem. Doctors would be paid Medicare rates, which are 40% below what they get paid for treating private patients. Private patients subsidize doctors for treating Medicare and Medicaid patients. If we eliminate private insurance, doctors and hospitals will lose significant amounts of income. Many doctors will decide they want to reduce the size of their practice or they want to go into another profession. That will exacerbate our nation's doctor shortage. Of course, these are all hypotheticals. So let's look at two countries that have Medicare for All or a version of Medicare for All systems. After more than 70 years in operation, the National Health Service, the UK's socialized health system, hasn't found a way to treat an unlimited stream of patients with the limited resources they have. In England today, more than 4 million Brits are waiting for medical treatment. Some are waiting for an appointment. Others are the victims of rationing. But even the UK allows private insurance. That's not the case in Canada, the country where I grew up. In Canada today, 
there are over one million people on a waiting list waiting for a procedure or a treatment. The cost of lost wages for these people who cannot work, according to the Fraser Institute, is $2.1 billion. It's no wonder that 323,000 Canadians in 2017 left Canada and went abroad to seek treatment for conditions that they thought they needed care immediately. Bernie Sanders will tell you, single-payer health care is free. The average Canadian family last year paid $13,330 in hidden taxes for a health care system that rationed care and had long waits that the taxes that Americans would face under Medicare for All would undoubtedly be higher since it would cover everything under the sun, dental, vision, long-term care, drugs. The Canadian system doesn't even cover those things. Long waits, high costs, poor outcomes. This is a harsh reality for millions of people around the world who are living under versions of Medicare for All. America's largely private health insurance system does merit reform, I grant you that, but Medicare for all is not the solution. Thank you, Sally Pipes, and that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is replace private insurance with Medicare for all. I want to move on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and they take questions from me and also from you, our live audience here at the Cape Playhouse in New York City. Our resolution is replace private insurance with Medicare for all. The team arguing for that resolution, Adam Gaffney and Joe Sandberg, have said yes, Medicare for all indeed is strong medicine, but they say it's the medicine that is needed now that we're in a country which is the richest in the world but also produces the costliest health care costs in the world, yet with many millions of people still uncovered. That Medicare for all is a way to make a system that would be universal, that would eliminate the things that wear down uh, people who are poor, with eight out of 10 Americans living paycheck to paycheck. They also point out, looking to your job for your insurance is an outmoded idea. We're not in that world anymore because the way that people work has also changed. Uh, The team arguing against the resolution, Sally Pipes and Nick Gillespie, As we just heard Sally say, they're not saying the system doesn't need reform. They are saying that Medicare for all is the wrong way to reform it. Nick Gillespie has argued that uh, going to Medicare for all puts us in a controlled system, and the controlled systems never work as well at delivering what needs to be delivered as markets do, that going to Medicare for all would uh, squash uh, innovation, would squash improvements, that it would require uh, $3.3 to $4 trillion in new taxes, that it hasn't worked. The team says it hasn't worked. They very uh, vividly describe problems in countries that have such systems as Canada and the United Kingdom. Basically, they're saying that it's too, it would have too radical an impact on our system, throwing a million people who work in the insurance industry out of work, causing doctors to give up the field because the way that they get paid would become very, very full of disincentives for them. Um, so there's a lot there. But I noticed that there's a difference on understanding and interpretation of the facts. There's also a basic philosophical difference, I think, between the two sides. I want to explore that very, very briefly, just a little bit. This notion that I think right now is certainly motivating the Democratic candidates, that health care is a human right. Uh, it's one that we are increasingly hearing uh, as part of the rhetoric. Uh, it's, it's not a new idea. The World Health Organization signed on to it back in 1946, and we signed those treaties, but it hasn't really been part of the conversation until, I would say, the recent past. So I want to start with, I'll, I'll go to the side arguing against the resolution. This question, uh, do you think health care is a right, and how does that inform the position you're taking on the resolution? Sally Pipes. Well, health care to me is neither a right or a privilege, as it's being talked about. Healthcare is a good and service, and like all goods and services, healthcare is necessarily scarce. Declaring a right to healthcare that is greenlighting essentially unlimited demand for healthcare will not miraculously engender unlimited supply in, 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 to meet the demand for healthcare. It's also unclear what a right in healthcare really is. Does it mean the right to the very best doctors, the very best care? or simply a right to equal care? If the latter, would the government have to ban people from paying for better care? And does the right to health care come with any corresponding duties? If I have a right to health care, does the government have the right to tell me myself that I am not healthy and that I can't have health care? Do I waive that right if I'm a smoker 
or if I'm a, a, obese, as in the UK, British people that are obese or smokers are having a hard time because doctors are told not to treat them. So I believe healthcare is not a right. Let me bring the same question to Adam Gaffney. Healthcare absolutely should be a right. It's not a right in this country because we care more about the interests of the private insurance industry and their shareholders than we care about the rights of American patients. So yes, it should be a right. Um, it's not some you know, complicated philosophical question. We consider a lot of basic social services rights in this country. We think children have a right to an education. Are teachers a scarce resource in some sense of the word? I suppose. Does that mean we, pay kid, we, we force kids to pay for their education and the ones who don't have enough money don't get to go to school? What kind of a society treats these fundamental social services that we all require as no different than luxury commodities. So absolutely, yes, healthcare should be a right. One of the points that was made in the opening, I'll take it to you, Nick Gillespie, is that Medicare for All has the virtue of, by definition, being universal. Mm-hmm. I, wanna, I want you to respond to that, that that's a worthy goal, it's a necessary goal, I think they're saying, and Medicare for All, by definition, addresses that issue. I think that uh, it is a fair point and a good question to say, why, why doesn't everybody have access to health care? And what we really ultimately care about is, when you need to see a doctor, can you see a doctor? Uh, are treatments being developed that really solve problems that we need to have solved? Having said all of that, it's one thing to uh, say, you know, something like Medicaid, which is a federal program that's split with the states that deals with poor people, Poor people have access to Medicaid and they get in the system and then they can't see doctors because there aren't any doctors who will take the payment schedule that Medicaid puts forward. So I want to rewind briefly and respond to some of the comments that Sally made in her opening statement because I think those are really critical. She painted a pretty scary picture of what healthcare is like in countries that have universal tax finance systems. Um, In Canada, it's funny because the man who's regarded as founding the Canadian uh, universal system, uh, Tommy Douglas, is regarded as a hero in that country. In the UK, the NHS is commonly referred to as the national religion of that country. It's funny that if these systems are so bad that people really actually seem to like them very much, not only that, they are petrified of taking the US system on. That's unquestionably true. You know, you heard a lot about waiting times in those nations. Pretty scary stuff. What about all of the people in the United States who are on waiting lines that are infinite in length because they have no health coverage at all? How about all of them who never get to see a doctor or never get to take the medication they need? There is no waiting list. They just don't get it. Sally Pipes. 323,000 Canadians leave Canada and go abroad for getting an MRI, a CT scan, or a hip replacement, or whatever, because the waiting lists are too long. Those numbers are not false. I am Canadian. I have doctors in my family. I know this. Tommy Douglas was named the greatest Canadian by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the government monopoly radio and television station. So just you have to think about where that came from. So we do have long waits. I, will, I have many, many stories. But I just want people to know that when the government is fully in charge, Doctors are paid, they're basically union members. They're paid rates set by your provincial government. Nick may be the very best cardiac surgeon. I may be the very worst. We're paid the same amount of money. Adam and Joe, I I want to take to, I, I want you to talk for a bit about a point that your opponents made, which is that Medicare for all will ultimately start to lower costs for people in the healthcare profession, particularly doctors. They do make a case that the way costs are going to be saved will be to reduce the amount of money that goes to hospitals and doctors. And that will be a disincentive for innovation and actually for participation in the workforce leading to a doctor shortage. So Uh, this is the fact of the matter. About 10% of our healthcare spending goes towards physician salaries. Now, a lot of people would like to see that lowered, but the reality is, is you can move to a Medicare for all system and keep that the same. That's not where the savings come from. The savings come from the fact, as I said earlier, that private insurance companies take 12% of their overhead, of of, of their premium dollars for overhead, versus 2% in traditional Medicare. Our hospitals use 25% of their revenue just for billers and coders and administration. And finally, there's big savings to be made on pharmaceutical companies, which are getting away with murder by basically charging whatever price they they want. 
because they have monopolies, not a very free market-oriented system. So that's where the savings come from. Nick, why don't you take that on? So your opponents are saying it, the money doesn't have to come from doctors. It will come from the bureaucracy of the private insurance companies, which now cover roughly 60% of the population. Yeah, it's actually higher than that, closer to 80%, I believe. But this discussion of... Medicare is great because it only charges 2% or it only spends 2% on administrative costs. That is because Medicare is geared towards retirees who are politically the most connected and uh, uh, you know, powerful constituency in America. Anytime the government goes to say, you know what, we're going to cut down on Medicare fraud and billing abuse or just mistakes, people go bananas, old people go bananas, they call their congressman and it gets stopped immediately. Well, just Whether or not we can cut 30% of Medicare's budget without affecting medical benefits, I can tell you we can cut 100% of private health insurance and we can improve medical outcomes. Because the essence of private insurance is about making profit for their shareholders. And the question that you have to ask is a philosophical one. It isn't solely one about numbers and cents. It is a question of do we want a society where the profit motive informs who lives and dies? I'm a capitalist, I'm a business person, I'm an entrepreneur. I think many things are totally suitable to the profit motive. But some things aren't. Joe, I mean, in terms of the profit that you're talking about, the insurance companies are making, in a recent year, it was last year, the year before, they made something like $22 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. But the proportion of healthcare costs covered by private insurers was about a trillion point one. That, that means their profit as a percentage of all of the money being spent by them on health care, it's not even 2%, it's 0.02%. It sounds like that's not money that would move the needle in any significant well, way. But let's, keep in, let's keep in mind that $22 billion, that $22 billion is the profit for shareholders. That doesn't count the tens of billions that go to executives, the tens of billions that go to unnecessary administrative work, all of which is ultimately a tax on low-income Americans who are disproportionately women and people of color. So it's a much bigger pie than just the $22 billion of profitability. Uh, you know, can I just quickly say insurance has been around as an economic instrument for, uh, you know, for centuries. Um, it is not based on cheating people. It is based on figuring out how you can pull risks and make a profit off of it. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and again, I want to stress this idea. We keep saying, I mean, I think you guys are claiming that medicine somehow is a totally different, it functions totally different than other parts of the economy, or it is a good that should be held in total abeyance of all laws of, of, of supply and demand. I mean, you, you know, why isn't food treated the same way as medicine by your lights? I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear questions from the audience when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S., where we are debating the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. Now back to the debate and questions from the audience. Um, right down the front row. I'm a physician. Uh, for the no team, does your argument against Medicare for all extend against Medicare for the elderly as we have it now? Are the philosophical arguments such that you would postulate, let's disband Medicare? I think that's a valid question. Sure. Uh, you know, I am a, a very late baby boomer. I'm in the second to last year of the baby boom generation, which, uh, and I'm not going to collect Medicare. Medicare will be bankrupt before I'm even there. I don't think that any entitlement should be based on age. I think all entitlements or all public assistance should be based on need. Um, seniors, seniors currently get a ton of money from the government, both in the form of Social Security and Medicare. Um, I think that should go to poor people regardless of age. So, Nick, to the degree that Medicare represents a universal solution for a certain cohort, you would say no. I think, uh, I think Medicare, as it is currently constituted, it covers less than 50% of its costs through various taxes and premiums and things that people pay into it. It is a big problem, particularly in an aging nation. I'm not in favor of Medicare for all. What I am in favor of is a free market health care system that functions like food delivery, that functions like housing, that functions like buying books and TV and clothing and things like that, where we let the market work and do its wonders, and then we subsidize and help people who are not getting enough. Before Medicare, 
Most seniors had no health coverage. They went without care. Many died as a result. That is no longer the case today. That is a huge progress. The idea that that should be turned back is, is unfathomable. Okay, let's go to another question. I, I think this question's for the motion. In order to um, fulfill a healthcare utopia, you need to have uh, accessibility. It has to be timely and affordable. Does Medicare for all simultaneously improve all three of those aspects? And if not, which two you think are the most important? Run through the list again, the three things. Accessibility. Affordability, timely, and quality. One of the underestimated advantages of moving to a Medicare for all system is the tremendous increase in transparency that it would bring to our healthcare system and the improved research, knowledge, and treatments that would come with that transparency. What would happen in a Medicare for all system is the amount of data that we would have would quadruple, quintuple, and likely increase the research and outcomes that are generated from a medical care system. That's an underestimated element. It also, though, speaks to one of the weaknesses of the private insurance system, which is tremendous opaqueness. Sally, does Canada have the kind of transparency we're talking about? No, because people don't know. You have a, everyone has a care card. Access to a waiting list is not access to health care. Nobody knows what anything costs, but I do know that doctors are very frustrated, and a lot of the best doctors come to the United States, but we need to keep the system open, and I agree, a price transparency is something that we need to promote. Okay, let's go to, back to audience questions, ma'am, on the aisle there. You're talking about market forces, and we're not talking about market forces in healthcare, uh, so to speak, but market forces in, in insurance, in coverage. How do you um, think that we have real market forces now when, um, when we are not decoupled from employment, when you can't go out of state, when you can't have a little Geico gecko telling you to use their insurance? You can't, when the users and payers are basically not one and the same, there are no market forces now in private insurance. You nailed it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Yep. No, I... I Nick, take, take the question. I, I, I disagree with you only in that there are no market forces. There are some market forces, but it's all screwed up because insurance companies act as cartels, and this is because of government regulation. You can't sell insurance across state lines. You, you know, uh, certain people get carve-outs. The whole idea that health, that health insurance is treated differently as a form of compensation than cash is one of the original sins of this whole situation. Uh, we should not be treating health insurance if your employer says, you know what, here's, here's $15,000 in health insurance. It doesn't get added to your tax bill. That's a problem. We should all be paid what our employer wants to pay us, and then we should be free to buy health care or not with that money. I think, you know, again, this goes to the question of price transparency. As Sally was saying, nobody knows what anything costs. As a patient, I don't know what it costs. I, I've gotten bills recently. I moved here a year ago. Uh, I went to a doctor, and I ended up getting uh, my insurance company, uh, you know, said, you know, this seemed to be too much. And it was, it was an office checkup, and it was like $600. I had no idea. I paid $35. Something is screwy here. Adam? Well, one cost we do know is that the U.S. healthcare system is twice as expensive as the healthcare systems of other high-income nations. So despite that lack of transparency, we're spending a lot more. The fact is, is that healthcare cannot be treated as another market good. Why? Why is that? Because in a market system, those who can afford health care get it. Those who cannot afford it don't and suffer. And that is what we have in the United States. We already have the most market-driven system compared to these other systems. I think you'd agree. And as a consequence, we have tens of thousands of people dying a year because of lack of access to health care. One final point. The idea that why can't healthcare just be like, you know, beer or cars or luxury TVs, there's one good reason why we can actually eliminate copays and deductibles for healthcare and not have this explosion in healthcare demand. It's because people don't want to take drugs they don't need. They don't want surgical procedures they don't have to have. They don't want brain biopsies. They don't want to be in the hospital more than they have to. So there is a self-limited demand. You can, in fact, eliminate copays and deductibles, and people will get the care they need when they need it. Okay, we have time for one or two more questions. Ma'am, in the white sweater, five rows in. Hello. Under the Medicare for All program, how would you create, um, encourage patients to be responsible when they're being given the services for free? And if you look at other systems, they have serious problems of abuse by people not showing up for their appointments, scheduling things that they want. And, and you have to have a, a, a system 
that would allow for... That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm very interested to hear the answer. Which of you would like to take that? Especially since it's a point that your opponents made in the beginning, that people would just would, would run everything they could out of the system. I know that you just said they would be self-correcting, but the audience member obviously needs more. I, I mean, I fundamentally disagree with the premise of the question. I think people miss appointments sometimes because they have difficulties in life. They face other obligations, children, work. It happens. I've missed appointments. And it's not a, a problem. I don't think as soon as you create a universal health care system, people are just going to book 12 appointments with four neurosurgeons and just not show up. I just don't think it's going to happen. Okay. So can I add one thing? Yes. Uh, so I just want to add one point. Um, in Canada, so many of my friends, as I said, and relatives are doctors. The average GP can see a patient for 15 minutes. That's, that's it. And they're seeing 55 to 60 patients a day. A lot of the patients that are coming because they think it's free, they're people who are lonely, they're old age pensioners, they are actually booking appointments and taking up the doctor's time and there's less time available for patients who really have a situation and they need care. And that's why my friend retired at 40, couldn't take it anymore. I think we have time for one more question. Be great with this question, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this question is for Nick. Uh, you mentioned you said that you wanted a free market healthcare system, but you also mentioned that you wanted transparency within that system. So my question for you is: How would market forces ensure transparency within a healthcare system? Oh, okay. Yeah, good question. I uh, suspect that they would uh, ensure transparency in the same way that grocery stores ensure transparency. Uh, what something costs is right there on the shelf. When you go to the cash register, you're asked to pay a certain amount, and that's it. Um, free markets benefit from transparency. I think part of the problem, and we haven't really talked about it, and I, I have a lot of uh, sympathy and empathy with the idea that insurers here are part of the problem, not because they seek profit, uh, but because they're able to mask a lot of behavior and because they're able to structure a lot of regulation that keeps competition out. Uh, same thing with cartels in general, with all due respect to Adam, you know, the medical cartel, like, why don't we have more medical schools than we used to, than we had, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago? Why don't we have more doctors and nurses? Why haven't we changed the way that we certify things and allow uh, 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 medical care to be delivered? It's a big deal, you know, just to get urgent care places put in and around New York, which are becoming a thing now. That took forever. Uh, we don't have a free market in healthcare, and that is not something that we should, you know, double and triple down on. That's something we should get rid of and bring in more market forces. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is replace private insurance with Medicare for all. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. In turn, they will stand up again and address you. Here making his closing statement in support of the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. Here is Adam Gaffney, president of the Physicians for National Health Program. I want to close by saying this. Every day that I work in the intensive care units, I see some of the sickest patients in the hospital, people with kidneys or lungs or hearts that are failing. The last thing I want those patients to be thinking about is how am I going to afford this? How transparent are these costs? I speak and counsel families at their darkest hours. The last thing I want them to be thinking is will this make me go bankrupt? But the reality is you don't need to work in an ICU to know that illness is profoundly trying even in the best of circumstances. By putting everyone in one public tax-financed healthcare system, we can do two things. We can control costs and reduce waste the same way every other high-income nation has done over the previous decades. But at the same time, we can expand coverage to everyone in the country and improve coverage for everyone else. We're not talking about lowering medical bills. We're talking about abolishing medical bills. We're talking about ending medical debt, ending medical bankruptcies. These will be relics of the past. So I want to end not by talking about what's wrong with our system, but talking about a better future, a future where everyone can get the health care they need when they need it, whether they're rich or poor, old or young, a healthcare system where you can go to bed every night knowing that you and your loved ones will always have access to healthcare no matter what obstacles you face in life. If you share that vision of the future, 
I ask you to vote yes on the, on the motion, Medicare for all. Thank you, Adam Gaffney. And that is the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. And here to make his closing statement against that resolution, Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. I want to talk real briefly about my experience with an HMO. This was in the late 80s. I was in grad school, and I was, I was buying my first health care plan. My parents were children of the Depression, and they said, you know, get as much health care as you can no matter what because you never know what's going to happen. So I bought an HMO plan that cost $2,000. I was making $9,000 a year at the time. It was great. It covered everything. The first day that I, I was eligible, I went there, I booked an appointment, and I got about 30 tests done. And as I was walking out, I saw a machine in the hallway, and I said to the doctor, you know, what, you know what's that do? And he's like, oh, well, it does this. Do you want it? Let's hook you up and give you a test. It was great. Everything was free. There was no price other than what I had paid already, and which would take me over a decade to pay off $2,000 that I put on a credit card check. Kids never do that, okay? It compounds. The next time I went to the HMO in order to get treatment because I had a rash or something, uh, they were like, is it life-threatening? Is it dangerous? Do you need to go to the emergency room? No. We'll see you in six months because everything was maxed out. That's what happens when you increase demand and you don't do anything about supply. That is what will happen with Medicare for All. And the problem with it is also that it won't be developing new treatments. The better thing to do is to allow markets to function much better and more clearly than they do, helping to de-link health insurance and health care from employers. That would be awesome in ways we kind of discussed. Uh, and then subsidize people who cannot afford uh, insurance on the open market. That's the way that it works in housing. It's the way that it works in food and all sorts of other things. It'll work great in health care. So vote against Medicare for all and vote for a future of better care and new innovative practices. Thank you. And here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, here is Joe Sandberg, co-founder of Aspiration.com. Two cents. That's what this debate comes down to. Two cents. We have a choice between a system that currently serves 60 million senior citizen Americans, the Americans who are most likely to need health care, serves these Americans in a way that only takes two cents of every one dollar for administrative costs. Is the system preferred, frankly, by the most powerful group of Americans politically, which are senior citizens? Or we can have a system where 20 cents out of every one dollar goes to administrative costs, a system that is leaving 80 million people uninsured or underinsured. That's what this debate is about. It's not about what's happening in Canada or in Britain. It's not about quotas on how many people can become orthopedic surgeons. It's about the proposition that Medicare for all should replace private health insurance. The question is two cents or 20 cents. If you prefer a system where only two cents of your dollar goes to administrative expenses, a system that has expanded the longevity of senior citizens, an organizational triumph, frankly unmatched in the history of our country, then I urge you to vote for Medicare for all. Thank you, Joe Sandberg. And our final speaker of the evening to make her case against the resolution as a closing statement, here is Sally Pipe, CEO and President, Pacific Research Institute. As we have heard tonight, health care is tricky. It's one of the few public policy issues that affects every one of us and often does so when we are at our most vulnerable. Perhaps tonight's debate convinced you that the American health care system is in need of change. I agree with you. Private insurance is not perfect, but I hope that you will vote against the proposition because I believe Medicare for all would leave us all much worse off. It may sound morally right to have Medicare for all. It may be worth the trade-offs, higher taxes, ration care, long waits, whatever, in exchange for a program that is supposedly going to give you security through a government-run program. Medicare for all cannot repeal the law of supply and demand. Good intentions can't fund hospitals, pay doctors, eliminate waiting times, and ration care. Several years ago, my own mother died of colon cancer after doctors ordered her as a senior to wait for a colonoscopy because there were too many younger people 
on the line who are going to have longer lives, and so she was denied that. She died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. My family's experience with single-payer is not unique. Countless families in Canada and the United Kingdom have stories like mine. We can't bring our loved ones back, but we can take action to save others from similar fates. We can stop single-payer from taking root in this country. We can say no to the false promises offered by politicians about uh, Medicare for all. And you can do your part right here, right now, by joining me in voting against the resolution. Thank you, Sally Pipes. And that concludes our closing statements, where our resolution is replace private insurance with Medicare for all. It's all in now. I've been given the final results. Remember, it's the difference between the first and the second votes that determines who is our winner. On the resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. On the first vote, 36% of you agreed with the resolution. 35% were against. 29% were undecided. Again, that's the first vote. It's going to be the difference between the first and second that determines it. On the second vote, resolution, replace private insurance with Medicare for all. The team arguing for the resolution, their first vote was 36%. Their second vote was 40%. They pulled up four percentage points. So that is the number to beat. The team against the resolution, their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 51%. They pulled up 16 percentage points. That is enough. The team arguing against the resolution replace private insurance with Medicare for All, declared our winner. I want to thank our debaters, thank our audience. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This debate was recorded live at the K Playhouse in New York City. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Rob Christensen and Mary Dewey are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is our audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Hi there. One last thing before we end the show. If you like our debates, I'm guessing you do if you're here, I hope you'll subscribe wherever you're listening now and leave us a review. And as you heard me say at the beginning of the show, healthcare is a topic we've covered before. So if you want to hear more Intelligence Squared U.S. debates on the topic of healthcare, we recommend episode number 156, where we asked whether retail alliances will fix the U.S. healthcare system. Episode number 140, the one I mentioned earlier, is the U.S. healthcare system terminally broken? Or you can just scroll through your podcast feed. I'm sure you're going to find something you like. We've done a lot of these.